Thank you for joining us. Remember, you can watch our services live and view our archive at StevensCreekChurch.com, the Stevens Creek app, or on our Roku channel. And if our ministries have touched your life, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email to mystory@stevenscreekchurch.com. We hope today's message encourages and inspires you. Enjoy the message. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? It's great to see you today. What an honor it is to be here. Can we welcome our Grove Town and South Campus? Well, we just love to be with you guys today, too. We love you, and um, man, what an amazing, amazing day it's already been. Um, I, I want to just start for just a second and give honor to really you. Uh, this is one of the most amazing churches on the planet. Whether you know it or not, you are influencing thousands of churches around the U.S. Because of you, uh, churches have led more people to Jesus, more people have been discipled, more people are active in their calling just because you are who you are. And, um, and so it is an immense honor for Caleb and I to be here, um, we, 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 don't, we don't leave very much. And so when they said, though, you can come and be a part of what God's doing at Stevens Creek, I said, for sure, we are there. And um, a lot of that has to do with your amazing leaders, uh, Pastor Marty and Patty. I mean, just the most brilliant, authentic, generous, God-loving people that I know. Um, dear friends, and I consider it such an honor to be here today, I really do. Um, as he said, my wife Kayla spoke yesterday, so this is kind of a, a big weekend for us. She spoke yesterday at your women's conference, and then I get to speak today. Um, and, and to be honest with you, no matter kind of how it goes, it's been a great weekend for us because we have five children, but we are childless this weekend. So uh, I think they have a picture of our family. I'd love for you to see kind of our, our brood. Obviously, um, you see if we would have brought them, we would have doubled the children's ministry today. So, uh, uh, but it, it's just been amazing to be with you and um, particularly for this series, Elephant in the Room. The reality is that more people today uh, are struggling with mental health issues than ever before. Um, the CDC calls it a literal health crisis. Yet, that conversation doesn't happen in some of the most crucial places like faith communities. So the fact that you have a church that's bold enough, brave enough, and cares enough to step forward into a conversation that is very delicate is really, really remarkable. Um, I'm honored to contribute to that today. I feel like God wants us to go to his word on every single issue, but especially especially the most delicate places in our lives. And so um, this is a heavy topic, but I believe that today is going to be encouraging. I believe that you're going to get something out of God's word, and I believe it's going to be life-changing. I really believe that. Um, and so today I want to kind of go into part two of this, this uh, Elephant in the Room series. You know, it was a few uh, months ago that Kayla and I took our two oldest girls uh, to get their ears pierced. We uh, went to one of these stores in the mall that is covered with glitter and lip balm and Hello Kitty. And uh, we went in and, and we put their names down. And for the next 10 minutes while we waited to be seated for the procedure, um, my girls wanted to just try out all the fragrances. I still smell like bubblegum and unicorns now based on that 10 minutes. Uh, but we, uh, the 10 minutes finally passed. They brought our girls back. They set them in the seat. And um, I mean, it, they were on cloud nine, so excited until the attendant explained the procedure. All of a sudden, the climate of the room changed when they understood that they were in for that pinch and that discomfort. Uh, Ellie's face went flush, and Sydney started chewing her nails. 
And I started to just encourage him. I said, come on, guys, it's going to be great. You're going to love it. And, and then I, you know, I wanted to comfort him any way I could. So I just offered to join. I said, what if I get my, what if I get my navel pierced? And that's when the attendant's face went flush. And, you know, um, just a few minutes more passed. And next thing you know, we've got two girls with their ears pierced and everything's back the way it should be. I was thinking about that, though. Um, everything about the procedure was about their ears, but everything about the whole experience was really about their mind. The whole thing was controlled about how they thought about it. And the truth is you can have some great things going on in life. You can have a lot of friends, success, but if the things that are in between your ears aren't right, then it's very difficult to enjoy life and to, to truly live the abundant life that, that scripture offers. It's time for us to have conversations about mental health because I've sat across from too many people who have suffered in silence, too many people who feel like they don't fit in church because they have a mental illness, too many people who are in despair because they don't know if they can ask questions. I'm so proud of a church that's willing to step into this conversation and reclaim the reality that you can bring anything to Jesus, anything. And you can be received. And so today I want to talk about that uh, in a message that really is just entitled Stigmas, Struggles, and Shame. Stigmas, Struggle, and Shame. Uh, University of Auburn did a research study. They wanted to find out if people's level of compassion was movable based on the type of illness someone had. So they created this experiment where the subject would come in and the subject was told, you are going to train another individual on a simple task and it's your job to train them to do this simple task. And the subject was placed in a waiting room and it's in the waiting room when they would, they would meet their partner or the person that they were going to train. Now the subject did not know this, but the, the partner was actually an actor. So the person would come in and they would chit chat. And during that conversation, it was the actor's job to disclose they had a mental illness. And then they would disclose it was either by biochemistry or it was caused by childhood trauma. So once they did that, the leader would come back in and then pull the subject and their partner into the next room where the task training would begin. It was then that the subject was told, as you train your partner, that if they make a mistake, part of the experiment is you have been given a red button. And when they make a mistake, we want you to push this red button and it will give them a small zap or a shock. Now, the actors were told to actually um, portray as though they were being electrocuted. And so um, they, they began to do the, the study. And what they found is um, really remarkable. They found that those who disclosed they had a mental illness due to biochemistry actually were shocked longer and more frequently than those who said it was due to childhood trauma. And here's what they deduced, that ultimately people do not believe mental illness is a legitimate illness without an external force. And therein lies the lack of compassion. Maybe more than anything else, stigmas are keeping people enslaved as they struggle with mental illness. Imagine, it, this is a place of higher learning this took place. And stigmas were so strong in the minds of people. How much more the stigmas play a role in culture, in our local churches, when it comes to mental illness. 
When it comes to stigmas, it just causes the person struggling to suffer more because they don't feel like they can step forward and ask for help. It limits the family and friends from being a support because they they don't fully understand and they're afraid to ask questions. It limits a local church because we think we can't talk about things like we're going to talk about today. The way I see it, the only person that benefits from the stigmas that are associated with mental illness is our spiritual enemy. He uses them like a jail cell to keep people from the freedom they need and to keep churches from being the ministries they're supposed to be. So here's what I'm going to do today. I want to give you three stigmas that I think we as as believers have to overcome. And then I'm going to give you three truths, things that will encourage you that if you or someone you know is in a mental health struggle, they're going to encourage you today on how God sees that struggle. Here's the very first stigma that we have to kind of tackle. It's this, that openly we misrepresent what mental illness actually is. Um, In today's world, we use psychological terms all the time in a very casual way. We say things like, oh, my team lost last night. I'm depressed. You know, I've got a big final coming up. I've got anxiety. Um, You know, my cat's acting schizophrenic. We say these kind of things. And And I understand the premise. I've said them myself. We use these terms that are really official terms in a very casual way. But we have to first just realize that that has to stop if we're going to give people room to heal. Listen, your team may have lost, but you're not depressed. Depression is when you are fighting against your own biochemistry to get out of bed and function in the most basic ways. You you may have a final coming up and your stress has increased, but you're not struggling from an anxiety disorder. That's when your neurochemistry is going in the wrong direction and it takes every bit of strength you have to come into even a room like this. The reality is when we hijack these terms, we make it more difficult for people to heal. And so one of the first things we have to do as a church is we got to create a space where people can actually have some of these things. Let, Let me say it this way. Mental illness is simply illness. And you wouldn't think, any, think it odd if a person walked in today with a physical illness like the flu. So from here on out, we have to create space in our minds for people to, to have an illness that we may not fully understand, that we may not have even experienced, but we're going to give them the space and the grace to begin their healing, and we're not going to hijack the terms they need to describe what they're going through. Second stigma that we have to overcome is that um, we often think mental illness is a modern issue. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say things like, we didn't deal with this back in my day. This whole stuff, that's just new. We we didn't have to deal with all that. Well, the truth is mental illness has been around since sin entered the world. It's not a new issue. Now, we know more about it today than we ever have before because of modern technologies, but it's not a new issue. It's part of the human condition that has fallen since sin. As a matter of fact, you may be shocked to learn some of the most central figures in Scripture dealt with mental illnesses that you and I know about today. Take Jacob, for example. Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. Uh, Out of Jacob's family came 12 tribes that eventually led to the nation of Israel. But Jacob struggled due to family trauma with a strong case of PTSD. You see, Jacob, um, you can see it in his symptoms as he loses sleep, as he isolates, as he chooses with erratic behavior based on family circumstances. One time Jacob was going to meet his brother who um, he had been estranged from and he ran completely away from his family, was willing to give up almost all his life because his anxiety was so high. 
At another time, he kept one of his sons from going to a life-saving meeting just because he was afraid of a past trauma from one of his other sons. Jacob was used mighty by God, but he struggled with PTSD. Take Gideon, for example. When we meet Gideon, the scriptures call him a mighty man of valor. We meet him, he's in a pit having a panic attack. He struggled with an anxiety disorder. This wasn't a one-time moment. As a matter of fact, he so struggled with anxiety that what you'll find is Gideon had a constant conversation of self-hate that was coming out of him to the fact that God would clearly speak to him in pronounced supernatural ways and he would still doubt God's working in his life and would disobey God. He dealt his whole life to build relationships. He struggled with guilt, all because of anxiety. Take King Saul. King Saul was the first king chosen by God to lead the nation of Israel. I mean, this is the guy that God chose. And yet he struggled with what we now know is a bipolar disorder. I mean, he had manic highs to the point where he would have celebrations, build statues in his honor, throw javelins, but then he would have massive depressive states to the point where he would actually struggle with even suicide. Let's take even the apostle Paul. I mean, we're talking the miracle-working, scripture-writing, church-building, superhero of scripture. Paul, if you read deeply, what you're going to find is a consistent tone of hopelessness, isolation, guilt. You're going to find it even in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Here's what he says. I despaired unto death. This mighty man of God dealt with depression again and again again again. Listen, that's what I love about the Bible. Because if I had written the Bible, I would write in the heroes that they had no issues. Strong in emotion, strong in the spirit, strong in physical in every way. That's not what we get in scripture. In scripture, we get broken people, people who are honestly, openly struggling, yet God works through them again and again and again. Listen, scripture proves mental illness is not a modern issue. It's a human issue, and it's one that God's not intimidated by. Now, the last stigma that I think we really want to wrestle with is this. It's the idea that we don't approach mental health and, and how we solve it holistically. You're a multidimensional being. You are not um, just a body. You're not just a spirit. You're not just emotions. You're, you're a mixture of all. And that's the reason that um, 1 Thessalonians 5.23 reads this way. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. What is completely? Well, it's going to include your whole spirit, your whole soul, which is your mind and emotions, and your body. And it's going to preserve you blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When sin infected the world, it affected every part of who you are, all, all dimensions. The scriptures say that your spirit was made dead, your soul, which is your mind and emotions, was made dysfunctional, and your body inherited disease. And here's what makes mental illness so difficult. It includes every single dimension. When you're in a mental illness or mental health struggle, it affects you spiritually. It affects you physically. And it affects you in your will and your emotions. And here's the problem. It's a multifaceted problem but most of us only approach it with a singular solution. That means that for some of us, we're willing to take a prescription, but we deny the fact that our spirit needs the word of God and the presence of God. Some of us are willing to go and sit down with a therapist, but we've totally ignored the reality that my diet, my exercise, and my sleep also affect this struggle. 
And then some of us say, I don't need therapy. I don't need a prescription. I'm just going to believe God. And we address it only spiritually. Many people in the church live by this stigma. They're trying to pray away their mental health struggle. Trying to read away. They believe if I just do enough, read enough, pray enough, God's going to take care of this. And what happens is, is over time, because they've only addressed it spiritually, ignoring physical, ignoring emotional, all of a the sudden they see they don't come out on the other side of it and they start to either be hard on themselves about the type of Christ follower they are or they start to doubt the promises of Christ altogether. This may be the single most damaging stigma active in the church. People who believe that they can only address this in a, in a spiritual way. And that's not an opinion. I've seen it firsthand. Kayla and I, neither one have really had um, what I would consider to be uh, kind of long-term mental health issues in any way, but we've had tastes. Uh, for example, in 2019, um, she gave birth to our daughter, Remy, and it was after uh, she came home that we recognized something was off. Um, Kayla's one of the most joy-filled people that I've ever met. She just lights up a room. She loves being around people. But when she came home, she started to struggle with what we now know as postpartum depression. She, uh, she, she was so tired. She was deeply sad. She was uh, kind of struggling to, to be with people and struggling to make decisions. We didn't know what was going on at the time, but the combination of her symptoms and me not understanding even put tension between she and I. And here's what I couldn't figure out. Kayla is one of the most godly people that I personally know. I was watching her struggle and at the same time read the scriptures. Struggle and still pray. Struggle and worship. And I couldn't figure it out. She couldn't figure it out. And it wasn't until a while later we realized what was going on. And it was at that time we said, we got to do more than just address this spiritually. We got to look at diet, exercise, make sure she's getting enough rest. She needs to sit down with someone and be able to pour out her heart and let them speak into her life. And through addressing every part of who she was, she came out on the other side of that and was able to return to who God created her to be. But listen, I'm here today because I think there's some of you who are stuck where she and I was. You're, you're struggling and you don't know that you, you can disclose that you're trying to follow Christ. You're trying to give your all to God. You're even in worship today. You're just waiting for your moment of breakthrough and it's yet to have come. And now you're starting to think there's something wrong with me. I'm doing something wrong in faith. Maybe there's something wrong with God. I want you to know this. This message is for you. God loves you so much that he sent me to say, you are not crazy, you are not irrevocably damaged, you are not less than, and you are not doing something wrong. You are loved by God. You're his child. You, he celebrates you even in this current state. You are not doing something wrong. You're just not fully equipped yet to do something right. God's working in you. Your best days are ahead. Listen to me. Joy and peace are still possible for you. You still have a purpose and a calling. And I just believe that victory in Christ is something you're going to see in not the distant future. I believe that when Jesus hung on the cross, scripture says that he had a crown of thorns on his head. That tells me that not only did he win the battle over sin, but he won the ultimate battle in the place of our greatest battlefield. And that's the mind. It announced for all eternity that through Christ, you're going to have victory. Your sickness is not your 
identity. Your challenge is not going to form your character. You're going to be kept by God. The Holy Spirit's active and working in you. The peace of God is active in your mind. And you will see the other side of this struggle that you're in. And it's not because of something you did. It's because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And as you open your life, your whole life up to him, physically, spiritually, and emotionally, he's going to do a healing work in your life. I believe it with all my heart. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you three truths. Three truths that could help you just be encouraged today. For where's God, what's he doing, and how's he working in my life in this season? Here's the first one. It's this, that God is present in this struggle. Now listen, I know that's tough to believe. Especially in the middle of a panic attack. Especially when you're seeing your son go through a schizophrenic episode. Too many of us have a theology that says this, God's good, so when things are bad, God must not be present. But here's the reality. God can still be good and things around you be bad. At some point in this journey, as a follower of Jesus, you're going to have to let Scripture, not your struggle, define who God is. You're going to have to stop looking around you. You're going to have to stop looking at the diagnosis. You're going to have to stop looking at your circumstance and say, this defines who God is, and instead let Scripture do that. You see, for many of us, we don't recognize that God's right there even in the darkest of seasons. That's why I'm so grateful for David. In his dark, dark season, he wrote about God's presence still prevailing. You see it in Psalm 139.7. He says, where could I go from your spirit? Where could I flee your presence? If I ascend to heaven, there you are. If, you make, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, there you are. If I take uh, up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. And your right hand takes hold of me. And I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. But even darkness is not dark to you, O God. And the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. According to this, there's no darkness you've ever experienced that God wasn't present in. That means he was present in the hospital room, present at every therapy session, present when you fulfill your prescriptions, present when you're in isolation, present as you listen online today because you didn't have the strength to actually attend. There's never been a place that you've been that God's not been there with you in this season. You say, well, then, Pastor Joe, then why am I still struggling? Because obviously if God's all-powerful and he shows up and he's present, he should solve this. Um, What I think the result of that question is is an underdeveloped understanding of a word that is so common yet so foreign, and it's the word grace. Grace is God's power in us doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. It's the supernatural dynamic that he, he just doesn't work at that, that we couldn't do. Um, but many of us sing about amazing grace. We read the word grace, but we don't even scratch the surface on what it really is. You see, God's grace is displayed in different ways in our lives, not just one way. Let me say it this way. Sometimes um, God's grace does a work in you. That's when there's a healing, a miracle, a restoration, something God just comes in and you're different. But sometimes God's grace works around you. He changes circumstances, situations, and people. But sometimes God's grace just carries you through. 
It doesn't fix anything around you, and it doesn't so much transform something in you, but it gives you a supply of supernatural strength to walk again and again and again in the middle of a struggle. I, that's what Paul found in 2 Corinthians 12, 8. He said, three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Now, there's a lot of debate on what it is. Some people say it could have been depression, though. Each time the Lord said, my grace is all you need. My power's working best in this weakness. And Paul's tune changes when he has this revelation because he says, so now I'm glad to boast about this weakness. Like, I've actually gotten to the place where I can live with this weakness because it lets me understand God's power and how it's working through me. Listen, God loved Paul and Paul loved God. And in God's wisdom and in Paul's surrender, there was a decision that was made that said, Paul, I'm not going to fix something in you and I'm not going to fix it around you. But every single day you wake up, I will carry you through this thing you're walking through. You see, if miracles are the only way that God can work in our lives, we have a problem. Because in another passage of scripture, he says, I've created something called the fruit of long suffering. If the only way God can work is miracles, then there's no need for the fruit of long suffering. But instead, God says, I've created two types of grace. There's a grace that can fix you and the things around you, but there's also a grace that can carry you through. So if you're here today and you haven't, God's not fixed what's in you or around you yet, it means you've been given grace to carry you through. And let me just encourage you, it's not a lesser grace. It's not a discounted grace. It's just as powerful as any other grace, and it's actually the proof of that you're still even with us today. It's the grace that shows that you've gotten up, that you came here, that you're still open to the work of God, that you're still open to God's people. That's a grace that's working. You should have been overtaken by your struggle, but grace and God's presence have preserved you because he's with you. Now, here's the second truth I want to give you is this, um, that God works through miracles and medicine. The other day I saw a post on on, uh, social media. Someone asked this question. They said, can someone give me a suggestion how? And they just, it was a simple question. And then as I read the comments, though, there were all kinds of assumptions and ideas and things that made no sense. You know, the Internet's just a funny place. The Internet's the place where you could post today, I like oranges. Seems simple enough. Except for in the comments section, you'll see things like, well, what's wrong with bananas? Why are you discriminating apples? What's your problem? I used to date a guy who liked oranges. Are you a jerk like he was? I mean, people come to some crazy conclusions. The Internet's an example that there can be such thing as well-meaning people who hurt our well-being. And nothing has done more hurt to our well-being in the church than when we've pitted miracles and medicine against each other. If you believe for miracles, it must mean you don't believe in science. If you believe in medicine, it must mean you don't believe in God. Here's the irony. Both come from the same source. Hey, listen, God does miracles. That's not just stuff we read about in Scripture. He didn't just open blinded eyes then. He didn't just heal cancer then. God still does that today. You may be sitting on a road today with a miracle that's sitting there. Someone who saw something supernatural take place. And because God did them then, he can still do them now. God can rewire biochemistry in a second. He can take your neurology and reroute it to where all of a sudden things are clear. He can give a dispensation of joy. He can give peace. He can bind wounded hearts. God can and does miracles. And that's why we stand on God's word. That's why we ask according to God's word. That's why we believe in God's word because God does miracles. God also works through medication. Did you know one of um, the descriptors that we get about God is that he's 
um, omniscient. That's a compound word of omniscience. It means all knowledge. God has all knowledge. If God has all knowledge and he was here before anyone else, then it means that all knowledge that we have came from him. Let me say it this way. The most brilliant people are only brilliant because God loaned them his brilliance, including the medical community. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite stories in Scripture is of a king named Hezekiah. The Bible says that he got a lesion on his hand and it got infected to the point that he was almost at death. And so God raises up a prophet and sends a prophet to him. And normally when prophets show up, things get pretty supernatural. All of a sudden, you know, fire comes from heaven, seas start to split. In this particular case, though, God sent a prophet to a king who was dying from a legion, and God didn't uh, grant the prophet the ability to do a miracle. He said, write a prescription. Look at it. It's um, Isaiah thirty-eight twenty-one. Isaiah said to Hezekiah's servants, make an ointment from figs and spread it over the boil, and Hezekiah will recover. God didn't show up in a miracle this time. He showed up with a prescription. And it brought Hezekiah the miracle that he needed. I love that. I found a quote that I want to give you. It's from Lewis Smedes, who's a Christian thinker, author, leader, um, really a, a, a brilliant, brilliant mind for the body of Christ. Here's what he said. I must be honest to tell you that God comes to me each morning and offers me a 20 milligram capsule of Prozac. He clears the garbage that accumulates in the canals of my brain overnight and gives me a chance to get a fresh start, morning start. I swallow every capsule with gratitude to God. I used to think that taking Prozac would be a sign of weak faith in God, but what if Prozac might be not a substitute for God, but his gift? Is therapy helping? Then God's helping. Is prescription working? Then God's working. According to James, every good and perfect gift, whether written by a doctor or come by the hand of a supernatural Holy Spirit, is from your heavenly Father above. God works in both miracles and medicine. Here's the last one. God's calling on your life's not been lost. As much as the stigmas are difficult, as much as the struggle of your diagnosis and the symptoms are are just more than I personally could understand. Maybe the hardest thing about being someone, being someone who has a mental illness or loving someone who has a mental illness is the shame. The shame that a mom feels when she wants to be more present. But she's struggling so much with depression. shame that a husband feels who wants to provide but it's so hard to get out of bed shame that a supervisor feels who's been given great responsibility and they think to themselves I can't even control my emotions how am I supposed to meet the goals for this team the shame that a Christian feels Somebody who follows Jesus shouldn't have these kind of issues. Shame is a lie from your spiritual enemy that comes in to say, you are wrong, and therefore you should expect nothing right. It wants to predict your future. 
That other people have a calling, other people have purpose, other people can be used by God, but you can't because of what you're dealing with. And if you're here dealing with shame, let me tell you, there's only two things you can do. And they're vital that you do them. First of all, you have to take shame's claim in your hand and you have to hold it up to the word of God. Will shame have the say over your life or will what God has said lead your life? And I, I want to give you a head start, so I found you a scripture. It's, it's Romans eleven twenty nine. It says, for the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. He does not withdraw what he has given, nor does he change his mind about those whom he gives his grace or to whom he sends his call. I love what one, one version of this says. It says that God's callings on your life are under warranty. Listen, you only put something under warranty because you expect it's going to break down. God said, they are just but dust. They're fragile, but I love them so much. Put their calling under warranty because I am convinced that they will complete what I've given them to do. And I'm going to go ahead and disp- give a dispensation of the grace they're going to need. The second thing you've got to realize is stop thinking that God calls some people and he doesn't call others. That there are such thing as perfect people and imperfect people. There's no such thing. God calls everyone and everyone is imperfect. There's only two categories. Everyone's called and everyone's imperfect. Nothing else. I'm reminded of a a conversation I had with a friend who's a minister. Some years ago, we were in a a conference together, and I spoke that morning, and then he spoke that night. In between sessions, we had a conversation in the the back, and we were just talking about family and life and ministry. I was talking about my kids. He was talking about his grandkids. He shared with me a profound moment he had had with one of his granddaughters. She was in his office, and they were... uh, they, they were just coloring. She was, she was very small, um, and he set her up at her desk, and they were coloring on a piece of paper with some crayons, and everything was going good. And he said, all of a sudden, she lets out this blood-curdling scream and will not stop crying. He said, I, I thought she had hurt herself, but I, I couldn't see any damage. And then he said, and then I figured out what had happened. She had pressed too strongly on her crayon, and it broke in half. And to her, the world was ending at the idea she could no longer finish this little masterpiece. So he said, I, I, I tried to find a different color, um, or something similar, wasn't good enough. He said, I tried to distra- distract her with some candy, never worked. He said, I didn't know what I was going to do. He said, I'm a grandfather. I'm not equipped for moments like this. He said, and then it dawned on me. He said, I picked up the two pieces of crayon, and he said, I took one of them, and I peeled back the paper. He said, I put it in her hand, and I moved it across the page. And he said, out of my mouth, I said, see, sweetheart? Broken crayons still color. He said, before the word had left my mouth, the Holy Spirit let the weight of it wash over me. He said, see, son, broken crayons still color and broken people still have callings. I don't know what you expected when you showed up today especially if you're a guest. Maybe you came here and you thought, oh, everybody there is going to be so sharp. Have it all together. Let me tell you what you walked into today. A big old box of broken crayons. Every person in every seat on every row standing beside this podium We're all broken. 
just in different ways. And there's no brokenness that's better than another brokenness. No brokenness that that outweighs another. We're all just broken. But the people that are at peace have figured this out. That we're all broken, but there's some of us who have offered our lives to God. And the hand of our Heavenly Father has come in and He's peeled back shame. And He's added His grace and He's began to use our brokenness to still paint out His masterpiece. And that is an offer that stands for every single person that's here today. I'd love the honor of praying for you. I just sent such the heart of God for the people that are here today. Would you bow your heads and let me pray? Heavenly Father, I pray right now for every single person at every campus. Oh God, I sense such your heart for them. Nothing about you is saying try harder, do more, strive. Everything about what you're saying today, Holy Spirit, is I'm here. I love you, I'm proud of you, and I'll carry you if you'll let me. So may Holy Spirit, you present a freedom in that today. For those who are struggling with a mental illness, may they find this to be a safe place. May they find you, oh God, to be a safe place. For those who love someone who's struggling with an illness, May strength come to them to be an encouragement, an advocate, and someone who helps carry the load. May a gift of faith be deposited that you are there, but that the best days are ahead. That you are carrying us through. And that today and tomorrow and the next day, grace, grace, grace for whatever we're facing. So, Lord, we come to you today and we just ask that you would apply your healing in your precious, precious name. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like to help support the ministries of Stevens Creek Church, please go to StevensCreekChurch.com and click the Give button. See you next time.